Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with Tina Pippin and our guest for today, Dr. Beth Corey. We are so pleased to have Beth on the podcast today. We speak from experience when we say that Dr. Corey is a pedagogue extraordinaire. Her transformational work on the page in the classroom and in mentoring relationships with young adults has helped empower countless people to emerge as leaders in their communities and live out commitments to peace and justice. An associate professor in the practice of youth education and peace building at Candler School of Theology, as well as the director of religious education at the religious education program there. Her research focuses on transformative pedagogy, theories of nonviolence, and conflict transformation. She has published many articles on this research, which are too many to list here. And this is not all. Since 2007, Dr. Corey has also served as the director of Candler's Youth Theological Initiative, or YTI, a summer institute where high school students explore entwined questions of theology, meaning, and justice, and where they are understood and honored as current, not just future, thinkers and change makers. Having worked at YTI during Beth's directorship, I can attest to the influence of this experience on nearly everything I do in my current work with college students. Beth is the sort of boss who redistributes power and cultivates horizontal participatory leadership within the community. And I think this is really important. She's a person who doesn't gloss over the real struggles of doing radical pedagogical work within a white dominated wealthy institution like Emory. There is a generation of youth ministers, college professors, clergy, and young people who are on the edge of their seats for Beth's forthcoming book entitled Youth Ministry as Peace Education, Cultivating Faith That Overcomes Silence and Transforms Violence. This book constructs an approach to youth ministry that is rooted in peace education and that takes youth seriously as the brilliant creative citizens that they are. Beth, we are so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Beth. Um, let's start with questions. Uh, the first question has to do with a lot of what Lucia said in her introduction, which is your commitment to youth leaders as citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, as and with youth leaders, uh, at, with youth as citizens and youth leaders as mentors, midwives, and curators, as you say in one of your articles. So uh, could you talk more about that and your commitment to um, sharing power and uh, share, sharing the journey of empowering each other in, in social justice work? Okay, so um, my main opportunity to practice that belief is through being director of the Youth Theological Initiative or YTI as, as Lucia mentioned in her introduction. Um, it's a summer program for high school students who come from around the world and they stay at Emory University for several weeks and they live in the residence hall with young adult mentors and Lucia was, was actually a youth participant as well as a young adult uh, 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 staff person there as well as Tina you were also a staff person at some mm -hmm. point as well right um, and I became director after three prior directors. So I inherited a good formation in, in, in thinking about leadership from a, from a Frarian perspective, from a critical pedagogy perspective. How do we, how do we center the students? How do we share power? Um, which, is, which is difficult to do because 
at the same time, you can't ignore that there really are differences. And when you're running a program with people who are under the age of 18, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. the legal system will still recognize you as the person that's responsible for their safety and care. So, um, so what I try to do is, um, a lot of effort goes into training my staff before the young people even arrive because, mm -hmm. um, because what I've recognized in my own practice is that our own assumptions about young people are so deep-seated that we're constantly having to relearn it or unlearn it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and when we're under stress, we default to much more authoritarian mm -hmm. um, leadership practices than in our ideal situation. So, you know, staff training is where we talk about, we're about democratic leadership, you know, uh, young people are going to be coming and they're going to, they're used to having adults give them the answers, especially in a religious setting. Um, I don't want you to give them the answers. I want you to give them two or three questions instead. Um, and that's something that they have to practice and learn to do. Um, I, I use that language of think of yourself as a midwife rather than a guru because we have a tendency in youth ministry to kind of um, lift up that sort of charismatic leader yeah. that, um, you know, you're doing good youth ministry if all the youth flock to your events because you're so cool, mm -hmm. right? But that's totally disempowering. Um, once you leave and youth ministers leave very easily very quickly mm -hmm. it's a high turnover they no longer you know they they were following you not learning how to become disciples of jesus christ mm -hmm. so um so a lot of my young adult staff have grown up in youth ministry settings where that's the model and so we have to talk critically about like don't be don't fall into the trap of the youth minister that you kind of already have mm -hmm. deep-seated in your memory think about what it means to um, to walk alongside young people, to be um, asking the same questions that they're asking, to invite them to ask the deepest questions, um, and that there's no shame in asking them, that any question is on the table, um, including whether or not God even exists, mm -hmm. you know, that there's, that there's a safe space for asking questions. Um, and it's challenging to kind of get my staff to, to do that because that also means that I have to train them or invite them to not always look to me to answer their questions when they want to know what to do in a particular ethical dilemma about working with the youth. Mm -hmm. um, and so encouraging, pushing it back onto them to say, okay, uh, you have the resources and skills for figuring this out, figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and do it together. You guys need to talk as staff members about what you want to do, not just um, uh, go rogue and have one person decide what to do. Um, so it's an ongoing process and it's also and it's always sort of naming the fact that we live in this larger culture that's always deferring to a top leader to give you the answers. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you the answers and you should not be giving the answers to the youth. Mm -hmm. Beth, I know you've talked about the images you have of youth, um, youth, young, young adult, the, the images that young adults have available to them as change makers, as people today. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that with us here and 
think about how it how it informs and intersects with this praxis of transforming power that you've just described. Um, let me think how I can kind of back into that. Um, part of what I'm trying to argue in my book, um, and that I've argued in some other places, is that there are sort of two images of young people that we currently have in our wider society, um, whether we recognize it or not. And that is youth as consumers or mm -hmm. youth as criminals. And those are separated by tracks that are based on class and race for the, large, for the largest part, right? And there's a deep history of that that I, um, probably won't end up in my book, but it will end up in another article somewhere that's deep-seated history that sort of comes out of the late 19th century, early 20th century, at the same time that we're pulling young people away from an intergenerational context and putting them into high schools so that they become separate from intergenerational um, learning. And uh, once they become an age cohort that very few adults have any interaction with, they then become a market, a separate age-segregated age market. But it also becomes this scary other that we don't feel like we know anymore. And so we project all these stereotypes onto this mm -hmm. mass of people. And well and we, you know, people would deny it if you point it out, but you see it come out every time you see a young activist speak out. Yeah. You know, if you follow the way that Greta Thunberg is trolled, mm -hmm. right? Or the way that the Parkland kids are trolled. You see these assumptions, oh, they're just a dupe. Oh, they're just following what the adults are telling them to do. Oh, you know, they're spoiled brats that, um, you know, have all this privilege. And, you know, there's all these ways that we try to tear these youth activists down, but they're kind of either based on thinking that they're spoiled brats or that they are uh, dumb and dupes or that there's something criminal about them and suspect. And that would be in the way that we would troll the, ag the activists on the ground in Ferguson, for example, right? Yeah. So the activists that are generally activists of color would be more talked about as criminals. They're rioting, they're, they're tearing things down. And then the ones that are coming from more, you know, middle-class backgrounds or white backgrounds, well, they're just spoiled brats, right? So and young people, I've noticed, have kind of internalized these images. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not supposed to do anything public until I finish high school, until I finish college, until I, you know, or, or I'm never supposed to do anything in public. I need to keep my head down so that I can stay out of jail or so mm -hmm. that I can, you know, get a good job and support my family or just, you know, fulfill the American dream. And so I'm trying to argue that we need to reclaim the image of young people as citizens. Um, and what's, and both in the democratic sense, but also in the theological sense. Um, in the democratic sense, you know, these are people who already, young people already are full members of our society. They have voice. Um, I wish that they had vote. I'm an advocate of actually reducing the voting age. In fact, mm -hmm. eliminating a voting age. Um, <clears throat> and, um, but even, even and until they can vote, they have all kinds of ways of exercising their power because as we know, 
voting is just the tip of the iceberg of what citizenship entails. And we see young people more and more living that out. I mean, the, the kind of um, impact that the March for Our Lives protests have been able to make and the ongoing organizing that they're doing, um, the kind of work that Black Lives Matter is doing, you know, all of these things oftentimes done by very young people, um, whether or not they can vote um, or do vote, that's the tip of the iceberg. But there's also a theological understanding of citizenship for those who care about the church. I mean, the, um, the mm -hmm. word that we use for church is ecclesia, and that's mm -hmm. borrowing political language from the Roman Empire. And the ecclesia is the gathering of citizens. And so um, because I happen to have commitments around the church and transforming the church, I want to make the argument that the church should also be a place where young people have full citizenship rights now. Mm -hmm. um, and that the church is a gathering of citizens. And um, but we have to move away from either this suspicion um, this criminalization of young people that there's doing something wrong or that their only role right now is to buy things mm -hmm. and um, and grow up to be consumers and producers. Yeah, well, could we get back to Youth Theology Institute for just a minute? Um, and could you give us some examples of how you see this kind of citizenship and activism um, done within that program or as a result of that program? Yeah. Um, I could do both. One, during the program. So, and I think this goes for anything that you're doing uh, with young people. If your first premise is that you want to share power as many ways as you can, then you're always thinking, I'm doing, pro I'm doing a program with them, not for them or on them or to them. Um, and so at YTI, this is a, a living learning community. We're living in a residence hall together. So we have things like a governance council, which has um, uh, rotating leadership of, of the youth participants alongside the staff who can uh, adjudicate um, problems in the community or make decisions about changing the schedule. They can um, find out what the rest of the community is thinking and bring it to the governance council. So that's one form. We have worship every night or almost every night. And instead of having a worship planner who does all the worship planning, they're inviting the young people to come together and plan the worship together, right? Um, so little things like that where everything that we do, we try to get their their input as much as possible and um and trusting that even if it's not the polished thing that you <laughs> want that it's much more important that it be authentic that it be from them and so you know people who uh, care a lot about liturgy um or having worship be very uh, flawless um <laughs> would would pull their hair out at yti because worship's often a hot mess but for me it's the most beautiful thing there is because that hot mess is coming straight from the heart and minds of the young people so we do that at yti but then coming out of it you know we have parts of our program where they study different social justice issues in the community um, they go and they learn from people who are activists in the community they find out what the issues are they find out how people of faith can be involved and sometimes they end up at protests like while they're doing these activities and one of my favorite um images is actually uh there was um a, a, 
a group that was studying mass incarceration and they were going out in the community and they were talking to different um, groups that were working on um, re-entry issues and they were also advocating to you know get rid of the box right on the employment application where you have to check a box if you have a, a prior record and they decided they decided the youth with their leader to go to the Capitol in Atlanta and protest mm. um, at the city hall and um, or at the state capitol, excuse me. And so one of my favorite images is uh, is these pictures of these teenagers with signs that they decided to make um, about ban the box mm. and about ending mass incarceration. And that happened during our program. Um, so yeah, that's mm. the kind of thing that, um, and it was because there was a leader that said, oh, you wanna do this? Okay. Let's do it yeah. instead of worrying about, oh, I don't know if we should do that. I don't know if we should change the schedule. I don't know if we're going to get in trouble. You know, it was like, let's just do it. And, you know, of course, and I think she even did it without even telling me that they were going to hmm. do it. And of course, I was like, awesome. <laughs> just make sure you take pictures. <laughs> this is great. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of thing that um, has come out of YTI. And then longitudinally, YTI is a, is a 26-year program. And one of the delights of my work with that is talking to the alumni um, and finding out what kind of work they've been doing since then. And um, of course, Lucia is an excellent example of it. She is yeah. a union organizer <laughs> and she does all kinds of social justice work. Um, and uh, but many of our alumni go on in various ways to continue to work on uh, homelessness issues, housing issues, gentrification, uh, racial justice issues. I mean, I've had a, alumni from YTI go on to work for the NAACP um, uh, in Black Lives Matter. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I wrote an article several years ago about um, back when uh, this is a, a fairly Georgia I mean, it was nationally well-known, but those in Georgia know particularly about the Troy Davis yeah. case and how he was um, slated for execution. And there was all kinds of evidence that he did not do it. And there was a lot of protests trying to prevent his execution. Well, one of the things that was um, really important for me was going to these protests and finding all these YTI alumni and former staff who were there, who did not coordinate with each other, who all just showed up, you know, some were currently in college in various schools around Atlanta, some were still in high school, some were taking gap years and staying at the Open Door community, which is a Catholic worker house mm -hmm. in Atlanta. Um, and, and so to show up at this protest and see all these different youth, black, white, middle class, working class, college students, high school students, faculty members, uh, workers at this thing to me was sort of emblematic of what either at least brought us together, if not encouraged us to be activists. Yeah, yeah. Beth, keeping on this YTI theme, um, I'm curious about some of the pedagogical strategies you found useful and effective in, in creating a framework for young people to reflect on, to see and reflect on, and to, then to take action in response to the conditions that are surrounding them. Um, 
I know from experience that people come into YTI with all different backgrounds relative to the level of analysis they have about racial justice, about um, in terms of what theologies they bring. What are some ways that you educate the community or invite them into a conversation um, of critical analysis um, so that they can end up at a place like the Troy Davis protest? Yeah. Um, we do a lot of different things and, you know, um, it, I wish I could say that all of it is this beautifully organized scope and sequence, but it's probably, um, there is a, a sequence to it, but then there's just a lot that kind of goes in there in part because I sort of invite the staff to bring in whatever they have also. But one of the first things we do at YTI, um, which we've been doing since 2014 is something called the game of life. And it's a simulation game. Um, and it is one, uh, some people I'm sure have done simulation games before or experienced them. It's one in which every one of the students is given an identity, that, a coded identity that's on their name tag when they walk into the room. Mm -hmm. And based on that identity, they get different amounts of money to start with. Um, for us, that identity is not just a class-based um, identity, but there's also race and gender, sexual orientation, um, immigrant status and um, uh, ability status as well. And, uh, and we've added these different layers of intersectionality as we've modified um, the, the, this um, experience. But um, so they come in and I have staff members at different tables set up so that you have the Department of Education, the Department of Housing, mm -hmm. you have a marketplace, you have a city jail, you have, um, let's see yeah an education place we have a bank you have these different social services and bureaucracies and i instruct the staff to treat each person based on the identity on their label and to do so using microaggressions hmm. um, they don't want to be super obvious because you don't want the participant to guess right away what their identity is but for instance if you go to the employment office and they are coded as a woman who's gay they're going to suggest that you become a pe teacher hmm. um, if you are coded as a person of color you're gonna there they'll suggest that maybe you should be an athlete for instance um the people who are um uh, coded as higher class get to jump the line they get more money every time there's a payday um the game goes way easier for them um those who are coded as an immigrant every single document they get is in gibberish and the people speak to them really loudly and slowly and um, so they go through this experience for about 30 to 45 minutes and I'm the game master and I have to kind of keep it going. And it's a, it's a, it's a market economy. And so I have to call payday every once in a while to make mm -hmm. sure there's enough money in circulation um, for people to keep going. But, oh, but you know, what's also really important is there are two cops who uh, stop and frisk and racially profile and, um, mm -hmm. And so it's very fun. It's very crazy. And if you know anything about 
the Stanford prison experiment, you will <laughs> note, you note that people inhabit their roles about mm. 20 or 30 minutes into the game. It takes yeah. no time before the participants become the participants who are on the lower rung of things start to become frustrated and demoralized mm -hmm. and the people on the higher rung of things become gleefully oblivious of what's going on. Um, there's occasionally some that will protest, but usually what will happen is at some point a few of them will start stealing or if enough of them end up in the prison, they start a jailbreak. And about the time that we have a jailbreak or a massive insurrection is when I call time. But I need to let it go long enough for there to be that sort of level of tension. So that's a long description. But after we do this, we process it. And I introduce these, you know, and they actually add up what their net worth is and all of this stuff. And so we process what it, what is intersectionality? Mm -hmm. How is it that several people with the same, who started off with the same amount of money still ended up in different places? Um, how is it that there were certain people that just got arrested again and again and again? Um, and, you know, did you guess what your identity was? All these kinds of things. So we process that. Um, and then I also introduce the concept of um, structural oppression. Mm -hmm. And to suggest that, you know, the, 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 yes, the game was rigged. And there was no set of choices that an individual could make that was going to get them out of how that game was rigged. And so that prepares them for then when we do go out in the community and look at different issues so that then when they go out and talk to people about mass incarceration, we can connect back. Remember how the yeah. same people kept getting harassed by the police, kept ending up in the, in the jail and how after they were convicted, they had a much harder time getting a job. You know, then it becomes clear, right? Mm -hmm. That it isn't simply bad moral choices, that there are structural things that happen. Um, and all the other ways that we can go out there, we can look at sex trafficking, we can look at environmental racism, we can look at, um, uh, you know, gay rights, these different issues that um, my staff take them out to see, and they can go back to this game constantly to do that. Um, over the course of these several weeks, we're introducing more and more different specific social issues, and we're connecting it back to these concepts of structural oppression mm -hmm. um, and intersectionality, which also, you know, is getting them to think about, well, how do you and your embodied self with your um, background connect in this? And uh, Lucia had made mention that, you know, the people that come to YTI are themselves incredibly diverse. So yeah. also inviting in these conversations about, you know, some of us among us have experience with law enforcement on all kinds of sides of that, either having a family member who is a police officer or uh, having experience with family members that are incarcerated. Um, some of us have direct experience of being ra racially profiled. Um, some people will say, oh yeah, those microaggressions, they seem ridiculous, but this exactly happens to me every day, right? So what we do at the end of our experience at YTI is have the young people identify a particular social justice issue that they're passionate about and then work with them to think about a strategy for how they might go home and continue to work mm -hmm. on that issue. Um, 
And so, yeah, we, everything from um, creating what we call a Kairos document, which is sort of their yeah. call to action for what they want to do, um, to uh, going through some of Gene Sharp's own theory of nonviolent strategy and thinking about, okay, let's, let's think about what, um, what resources you already have for um, engaging in, in making social change when you get home. That ends part one of our conversation with Beth Corey of Candler School of Theology. In part two, we're going to talk with Beth about deliberative pedagogy and the power of intentional communities and democratic spaces.